Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, editor of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest today is Dr. Ronit Malko, who is joining me to talk about the autism services industry and the growing investor interest in this space. She's trained as a clinical psychologist, and in 2001, she co-founded a business called Autism Spectrum Therapies, which she later sold to a private equity-backed strategic buyer. Today, she is the CEO of Empowering Synergy, where she conducts due diligence for private equity firms and other investors in the healthcare space. Ronit, thanks for joining me. Great. Thank you for having me. Sure. Can you give an overview of the autism services industry? What types of businesses are we talking about, and what are some of the specific services that they're providing? Sure. The majority of services for individuals with autism are behavioral services, and they're provided typically in a clinic setting, in the home, or at school. Um, By behavioral, what I mean is services that target changing behaviors, such as improving behavior problems like a tantrum, and teaching critical skills, such as communication, social interaction, and daily living skills. For example, grooming, dressing yourself, hygiene. Um, These services are predominantly based on the science of applied behavior analysis, or ABA, which is a scientific method that describes the use of techniques and principles to bring about meaningful change in behavior and to teach skills. Um, ABA was developed over 50 years ago, and it can really be applied to anything. It's not specific for individuals with special needs. You can use it in management, in, in business, in personal life. It's a, you know, it's just a science and a technique of changing behavior, essentially. ABA is currently the most widely funded treatment option for autism, paid for by state uh, grants, by federal programs, as well as commercial insurance companies. And some additional services that individuals with autism would get would be speech therapy, occupational therapy, and sometimes uh, medication. And how large is the market for autism services and and how fast is it growing? So it's growing quite rapidly. Um, In in the spring of this year, in March of this year, the CDC released new data on the prevalence of autism. So the, the prevalence now is one in 59 children who will be diagnosed with autism. Two years ago, it was one in 68. Mm -hmm. So it continues to grow. um, And about 2.5% of the U.S. population, which is about 2.1 million individuals, are diagnosed with autism. There are still individuals who are misdiagnosed or unaccounted for, especially in lower-income communities. So this number is likely to continue to increase. The industry is estimated to be at almost $2 billion with about one point. $1.1 $1.1 billion generated by ABA providers and the rest, uh, genera- the rest of the revenue generated through medication and pharmaceuticals. Um, it's growing at about 3.9% on average annually, but as more payers enter the market, this rate will likely increase. And in terms of the total costs, uh, the total annual costs for children with autism are estimated to be between $11.5 billion and $61 billion. So that's a wide gap and there's still a lot of research being done Uh, but it's a it's a big market and a growing market and what does the business landscape look like are autism services providers primarily local and regional players or are these companies with with a national scope or or a mix so there are the, the industry is young and there are a handful of national platforms 
that mostly have recently been consolidated by private equity over the past three to four years. So as of 2016, the data shows that the nine largest multi-site providers account for about $400 million in revenue, and that's almost about 40% of market share. Mm -hmm. So the large players are very, you know, comprise a small amount of the market, and the remainder are very small companies, probably one to five million dollars in revenue, and it's a highly fragmented market. The market's comprised of a combination of brick and mortar centers where families will bring their kids to a center-based program. The other, other providers will serve the family in their home by sending the provider to the home to do therapy. And then there's some providers that have a hybrid model of these two services. Um, and also some providers who serve within the community. So these large platform providers would be around about 70 to $150 million in annual revenue. So compared to the rest of healthcare, it's still a, a large autism company is still a relatively small business. And as I said, the majority of providers generate under $5 million annually of revenue. And can you talk a little bit about, about your involvement in the industry personally? I've been working in the industry for almost 30 years. I have a, I'm a clinical psychologist, and my training is in working with children with developmental disorders, specifically autism. Um, in 2000, I co-founded a service provider in California called Autism Spectrum Therapies, which we grew into multiple states across the U.S., and we became one of the largest providers. Um, we sold AST to Learner Systems in 2014, and the company has continued to grow as part of what is now Learn Behavioral, is the new name of their platform. And that comprises multiple companies. I started a company recently, Empowering Synergy, and we advise investors in the market as well as service providers. So predominantly, I work with private equity firms who are looking to make investments in this industry, helping them understand the marketplace and analyze um, specific targets. And are you seeing interest among private equity firms increase in this space? Yes, there is a significant increase in investor interest. As more deals have taken place over the last three to five years, and as the numbers of individuals with autism continue to climb, which results in a demand for services, more investors are expressing interest. So I would say the market is the most active it's, it's ever been in autism. And are most of these firms, do they already, are they focused on the healthcare space, or are you seeing generalist investors starting to, to be interested in, in autism services as well? Predominantly, they're in healthcare, um, and they're interested in in expanding. Some are interested specifically in developmental disabilities and others have platforms or are interested in growing platforms in broader behavioral health. So they may have invested in an in-home nursing company or an addiction treatment company or traumatic brain injury and they're looking to expand or or special um, education after school um, tutoring and those companies are looking to expand across behavioral health care and include autism in their portfolio. And what's the role of private capital in helping these businesses? What are what are some of the needs that they're meeting? So there are multiple needs and potential roles. Um, the, as I said, the autism services industry is very, very young in healthcare, and there are many opportunities for consolidation and for growth and expansion of service lines. There's also a huge need to improve the quality of the programs that are out there and the outcomes of services. And so the industry essentially focuses on short-term outcomes mostly you know they'll, they'll, you'll get a child who's three years old who's diagnosed with autism you start providing services and you look at how is their communication changing their social skills their independent living skills how can they integrate at school 
but there isn't much of a focus on those long-term needs. And what we're finding is that adults are not faring as well as as we would like them to. 86% of adults with autism are unemployed hmm. and very few live independently. So the industry really needs to focus on long-term outcomes and are we teaching kids the skills they need for adulthood when they're younger? And that's a big gap in the market. So private equity can really help boost the market and improve improve it both from the perspective of bringing around business sophistication, business processes, kind of up-leveling how these businesses run, but also investing in more of a long-term view on where what consumers need as they grow into adulthood. And so is a lot of the capital flowing in growth capital, or are you seeing efforts at a consolidation to merge some of these businesses and, and create larger platforms? It's definitely both. Consolidation is a priority for investors. Um, a handful of investors are working at creating the national platform. You know, they want to have the substantial national platform, but that hasn't really been accomplished yet in the market, and there's still space for more platform players. Um, investors are forced to inject capital into businesses that they select because many, if not most, of these companies are quite unsophisticated when it comes to business process and operations, mm-hmm. and they're really not leveraging technology for efficiency and things like fraud prevention. Most of these businesses were started by clinicians who are very mission-driven, focused on clinical service, great intentions around serving customers, but not as sophisticated when it comes to business process efficiency, you know, human resources management, and and leveraging technology long-term. So there is investment generally needed in most of these companies. Um, Also, because we've come from a state and federally funded system, historically and only recently has commercial insurance come into play, a lot of business processes are dictated by those state regulations. So, for example, in California, up until recently, it was a very paper-driven system. The state of California, who was funding services, required all different kinds of forms be filled out, and it was paper-driven. So leveraging technology is difficult when, you know, your regulations and your compliance requires that you write everything on paper. Mm-hmm. So the industry is moving, but it hasn't really caught up with the rest of the medical field in terms of electronic health records and and, and efficiency. Interesting. And in terms of in terms of risks that investors should know about, you know, what do those look like? I imagine there's probably reimbursement uh, and regulation risks that, that they need to be aware of. Yes, yeah, so um, insurance has entered the market in the last probably 15 years, but really in the last five to eight years, there's been more and more states have adopted this legislation that mandates commercial insurance to pay for services. Mm-hmm. So that's really increased investor interest because there's you know there's a different payer base than just having a state and federally funded model. Um, along with that has come an increase in fraud in the industry. There is quite a bit of fraud in the industry, both intentional billing fraud and unintentional billing fraud where companies just don't know that they're not following, for example, a Medicaid billing process correctly or an insurance company billing process correctly. Um, there's also fraud in the sense that um, some credentialed individuals will are selling their licenses or, or letting people use their license to provide services when the individuals starting these businesses are not actually licensed and credentialed. Mm. So there is some of that happening. So fraud is definitely an issue that needs significant attention during, during a diligence process and, and 
examining the processes of the company. Um, as you mentioned, potential funding is always a risk, although there's been an influx of, of funding into the market. I think where the risk lies there is potential compression of rates. As companies consolidate and become larger, uh, will we see rates decrease? Um, as I mentioned earlier, outcomes is a big area of need in this industry. Um, it's, it's challenging in behavioral health to measure um, outcomes the way you would medically. So, you know, in a medical practice you could, or a research study, you could give a 1,000 people the same medication for the same medical condition and, and look at the outcomes and the effectiveness of the medication. In autism and other areas of behavioral health, each person is quite unique in how they're challenges present and what their needs are. Mm. So it's difficult to say that we're all starting with the same baseline level and that our intervention from a group perspective is effective. So one-on-one -on -one with one child, you can say, you know, when, when we started working with him, he, he was three years old biologically, but he was really functioning at an 18-month-old level developmentally. And you can see how those developmental skills improve with your intervention, and ABA provides all the scientific tools to show that your intervention is responsible for the change in skills and the growth and the change of behavior. But it's difficult to do across a group of 10 or 30 or 1,000 kids with autism because you're not, each child has such unique characteristics and such unique needs. So as a result, we don't have great outcome data where you can compare provider A to provider B and say, you know, why would I as an insurance company work with this provider versus the second provider because how do I know how they're differentiated and, and what their outcomes look like. So the industry really needs to progress in this way and figure out how to demonstrate outcomes. Um, the other part of that is that companies haven't really played well with each other in terms of sharing outcome data. So there are some organizations trying to get companies to share outcome data and measure the same things so that we can at least compare. You know, if we measure these the same way, we can look at those outcome data differently. Um, so what's happening is, is payers are starting to dictate how outcomes should be measured, which is always risky because they may not necessarily and often do not understand the complexity of the treatment and the scientific principles. So I think we are, outcomes are a big issue. Payers are going to want to see outcomes as we move towards value-based reimbursement models from payers. Companies are going to have to be able to demonstrate outcomes in a way that's meaningful for payers. So I think that's actually one of the biggest risks. From a company management perspective, retention of staff is a significant issue. Mm -hmm. I've seen attrition rates anywhere from 15% to 85% which means that if you're trying to scale a large platform and you need to hire you know, 50 direct service individuals a month, if you're losing 40 of, of those service members a month, it's really hard to scale rapidly uh, when you're dealing with attrition rates that are so high. And when you're working with private equity firms that may be new to this space, um, you know, do you find that are these challenges surprising to them, and, and do you see investors kind of back away maybe once they, they better understand the challenges around, around outcomes or, or staff retention, or do they see that as an opportunity to really add value and get involved in an industry that's kind of undergoing a lot of change? 
I think it's both. I think the fraud and the and the outcomes they see as opportunities, right? To to improve services, to improve efficiency, to implement systems that will take care of that, and to become the provider who figures out the outcomes. You know, problem. I would say it's not really a problem, but the fact that it hasn't been done well. The company that figures out how to present outcomes, how to measure outcomes, and how to differentiate themselves as a, a superior provider. So those are generally seen as opportunities. Where I see companies back away from investment is generally the staff retention and the attrition issues. Um, I've seen companies walk away from deals because when they look at scaling a company to the size that they want to and they look at the attrition issues in the market, um, it doesn't seem feasible for them to grow to the size they want to and, and manage attrition. And are there other common misperceptions among private equity firms that are exploring this industry for the first time or mistakes that you've seen new investors make? Um, I don't know if it's misconceptions. I think it's more of an unfamiliarity with the market. So private equity will come in and be interested in behavioral health, but autism has autism services have a lot of nuances which don't fit the medical model and don't match other aspects of behavioral health, such as addiction or eating disorders. So understanding the complexity of autism services, the intensity of services, because most kids are receiving intervention every day, five days a week for two to three years, which doesn't really match the medical model of, you know, I have a disease and I take a medication or I have a surgery and I recover from that. It's a shorter term, generally a shorter term or a very specific treatment model. You know, if you have this, if you have appendicitis, you have this medication or you have this surgery and it's kind of clear cut. In autism, you know, one of the most frequent questions I get from private equity is, aren't all ABA programs the same? And the answer is no, they could be because our science provides for a very specific way of delivering services and measuring the outcomes of those services and then making programmatic changes based on the data you receive. But I haven't actually seen one company so yet that's doing it the same way. Mm-hmm. And so each company is, is developing their own program, their own training program, their own method of de- delivering services, their own method of measuring. And so you can't just look at five ABA companies and compare them directly because the programs are not created equal. So that requires a lot of time and familiarity with how, do, how does this, where does this player sit on the spectrum of quality in the industry, on the spectrum of um, differentiating itself. You know, and there are private equity firms that care more about how rapidly can I scale this business and see a return on my investment, and there are others who are more focused on social impact, broadening services, creating a comprehensive model where families can receive all the needed services in one place and they, they become more of a lifelong you know, provider for families. So I think it depends on the focus of the private equity firm. Um, but I think it's just boils down to more of an unfamiliarity with how what, what the nuances are of autism services and really understanding that that may just be, for example, the attrition issue may just be what kind of business we, we are, what kind of an industry we are. It's a high burnout industry. If you have providers driving to homes, you know, it's difficult because, you're spending a lot of time on the road. You don't have a cohort of employees that you're seeing every day. It's, it can be lonely. Um, if families cancel, you're often not reimbursed for that 
session, but you may have driven an hour to get there and you may have another hour's drive to your next one. So getting a consistent salary is difficult. But if we understand that that's the nature of the industry and create systems to work around that, that's an approach that some private equity is willing to take and others shy away from because it doesn't match their model. Hmm. Um, One of the biggest mistakes that I've seen investors make is bringing in an entirely new management team once they've acquired a a company that is unfamiliar with autism. And when your entire upper executive management level doesn't really understand the nuances of the autism industry, that's where I see things start to, can easily go wrong. Hmm. Because what I find running my company and, and working with other providers is it's really important to understand the needs of the family and how we build services around the needs of the family. If the entire focus is on growth and acquisition and and leveraging process, which are all really important pieces of running a business, but if we don't really understand the clinical need and the family relationship, that's where I often see um, companies go, of course, not meeting their targets. You know, it's a very, very personal industry. You're dealing with families who have received a diagnosis that's very difficult to digest. They have to reframe how they see their child's future. It's not going to be how they envisioned their child's future. And it's a very difficult road. It causes a lot of stress in families. And so really having somebody at the management level who understands that clinical piece and appreciates the balance between clinical need and business need, I think is critical. And I've seen those companies fare better than companies will, that, you know, investors will often bring in a, a team from the medical model, a team from a hospital setting. And I just haven't seen that work as well as companies that, have that clinical piece on the executive team understanding the nuances of these services. Hmm. So even more so than other industries, having that personal approach is is really key in this space. Yes, and I think if the focus is on growth without outcomes, that's a risk to a company because there's a very strong parent advocacy network in autism and parents, you know, refer to each other all the time and, and ABA has developed somewhat of a bad reputation in certain areas because of how services have been delivered and the lack of personal connection with families and with consumers. Hmm. And so I think that's risky for the ABA industry if we're not really bringing in the human component um, and focusing on all the business side of it. I think, you know, families speak about that. Families go to each other and say, what kind of services should I use? And and that network is very strong and the parent advocacy is very loud. Hmm. I think companies need to pay attention to that. The other thing that I see come up in autism, and this comes up in other industries as well, is a lack of focus on company culture. You know, most, as I said, most autism companies are started by clinicians. They're very mission-driven. They're very close to their families when they start their, their companies. And it's a lot of these companies have a family feel around the staff and what they're doing and this, this really hard work that they're doing in a really difficult industry. And if that culture is not taken into account, what I've seen often is investors come in and the great clinical people leave and move to other companies where they feel that that sense of family and that sense of belonging and and ownership over the mission. So I think culture is important in every business, but super important in this industry because of the clinical nature of the services. Great. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Roni, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.